Hi, I'm Joy Howard, editor of Brigham Health Magazine. On Thursday, January 14th, the Brigham hosted a program, Fostering Hope, Navigating COVID-19, featuring a panel of experts who are leading COVID-19 response efforts at the Brigham and nationwide. Today, we are sharing the full panel discussion, led by Dr. Chuck Morris, Associate Chief Medical Officer and Co-Commander of the 2020 COVID-19 Incident Command Team. Thank you all for coming to join us this evening in this new way of doing this. It was almost exactly one year ago that we convened our incident command at the Brigham to address and plan and execute an emergency response after we heard these reports about a circulating respiratory virus coming from China. We're now 12 months wiser. The promise of prevention and therapeutics is strong. And I'm excited to have three dear colleagues join me in a panel discussion tonight to share their experiences and insights. In alphabetical order only, I'd like to introduce Dr. Lindsay Baden from the Division of Infectious Disease. He's our Director of Clinical Research and very germane to tonight's conversation. He was the principal investigator of the first US COVID-19 vaccine trial nationally. He led the important work that happened and defined Brigham and Women's as a lead site for that study, but really led that work nationally. I'd also like to welcome Dr. Atul Gawande, a surgeon from our own Department of Surgery here at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Among many accolades, he's the founder of Ariadne Labs and is a member of the President-elect Joe Biden COVID-19 Task Force. And I'd also like to introduce Dr. Michael Klompas, also from the Division of Infectious Disease here at the Brigham Women's Hospital and our own hospital epidemiologist. I would say it's impossible actually to imagine navigating what we have over this last year without his trusted hand on the tiller. He is our critical medical advisor and subject matter expert for all things COVID to our incident command team and really to our entire community. So we've received many questions in advance regarding access to vaccine. How do I get it? Where do I get it? And specifically, will Brigham Health be giving me my vaccine? So we'll spend some more time tonight diving deeper into the vaccination topic, but I thought I'd just take a moment to address this particular question. So we're seeing every state take a different approach to vaccine distribution. For those of you who are in Florida now, I imagine many of you may have already been able to access the vaccine. Those here in Massachusetts will still need to wait as the governor and the Department of Public Health and the Department of Health and Human Services have made it clear we will not as a state advance to so-called phase two, those over 75 years of age or over 65 with serious health problems until phase one healthcare workers, residents in nursing facilities, and other first responders are vaccinated. There's no mechanism to move people up in the queue. Now, there's no question that the number of people who want and will benefit from this vaccine is high, and we understand the desire to get it as soon as possible. But as healthcare providers, we really are obligated to adhere to state guidance, and so we ask for your patience. But the great news is that we're making huge strides here. So Mass General Brigham has already vaccinated almost 45,000 of our staff. And the latest update from the state is that they hope to start that phase two vaccination in as early as two weeks from now. So those vaccines will likely be administered through a combination of retail pharmacy sites, central vaccine locations, and perhaps even from individual clinical offices we'll be updating all of our patients with weekly gateway messaging that actually started today 
and we'll keep that up as we have more information, so stay tuned. So I'd like to start the panel discussion. I'm gonna start first with Dr. Klompis. Uh, Mike, it was almost a year ago when we set up that incident command. While much progress has been made, we've redeployed staff, we've converted spaces, we've secured personal protective equipment, ramped up testing and treatment, and developed a vaccine, we're still seeing troubling spikes in infections and deaths locally and globally. I was hoping you could share where we are at the Brigham today and put that in context, both for the nation and the globe. So thanks very much, Chuck. I appreciate the opportunity to be able to, to share some thoughts. The real hotspots right now are the United States, South America, and patches of Europe. And the notable place in Europe is really is the United Kingdom and Sweden, which of course has interesting connotations. United Kingdom, because of the concern about their more transmissible strain over there, the B117 mutant strain, and in Sweden, because we know the history of Sweden's particular and unique approach to the, the epidemic, which ultimately did not pan out to be a very successful strategy. The other hotspot is South Africa, which is also seeing a large escalation in cases. And the concern over there is that South Africa is also dealing with a mutant version of the virus that also appears to be more capable of spreading more easily, or more effectively, more efficiently compared to other strains. Give you a comparative sense as to where things are by region of the world. And unfortunately, um, this is an area where we are number one, uh, not the sort of area we would want to be number one, but we have far more cases on a per capita basis compared to just about every other region of the world. Now, the one exception to that actually is the United Kingdom, which we'll speak more about, who in the context of their more contagious strain actually has similar cases per million people to the United States. We're at about equivalent levels right now. But the worry is their increase is due to the mutant strain. Our increase, we don't know yet, is due to that. And so when that strain does come here, and inevitably it will, um, what further increase might we see within our country? A band of intense activity all throughout the southern United States, all the way over from California, Arizona, the entire south, and up along the eastern seaboard, and in fact, from Kosher Island to Massachusetts, it certainly does include us as well. So we are one of the states with high and rising disease rates um, as well. It's interesting to reflect back on the, the movement of the virus over the, uh, around the country over the past year. You recall that initially the cases were in California and in, uh, in Washington State, and it shifted to the northeast, New York, to Massachusetts, and other parts of the northeast, and it went down to the south, and then to the Midwest, and then back to the south, and now back over to, to the northeast again. So there's a particular pattern to this virus where it's, where it's able to go into waves of increased activity, followed by decreases, followed by return within the same areas, getting a second or even a third surge of, of, uh, of disease. So honing in on Massachusetts, and the striking thing is that we all know well our spring surge, where we had many cases, we went to complete lockdown, um, that did lead to a dramatic decrease in cases. We went from about 2,000, 2,500 cases a day in, in March, April, down to around 200, 300, 400 cases per day over the summer. But what you've seen since then, that since about the middle of September, early October, we've seen a successive rise. We have a surge in September, October, in a flattening out, then another surge after Thanksgiving, then a flattening out and maybe even a decrease, and now a third surge following Christmas and New Year. So we really are dealing with a, a surge on a surge on a surge. In terms of the way that's translated into our inpatient census, it's been interesting and not maybe not quite we would have, what we would have expected. Back in the spring, altogether we had about 170 patients at our, at our peak. That came down to an average around 10, 20 patients per day in the summer. And we've seen a sustained rise since then. On our non-ICU population, we're almost at the peak that we were back in April. Interestingly enough, though, in our ICU population, 
We're not seeing that same degree of increase as we did before. And the speculation is that that could be due to the fact that, that the virus is predominantly affecting healthier people this time around, so particularly younger people. Um, and secondly, a testimony to, to the quality of some of the new treatments that we have and our treatment strategies around being able to avoid intubating patients, avoid putting patients onto breathing machines for as long as possible. Just a word or two about the new SARS-CoV-2, the mutant virus that's been circulating in, in England. It is now certainly worldwide. There are at least 70 plus cases in 12 states within the United States, so it is here. And I think that the, the, the number of cases that have been detected is a massive underestimate because we don't have good systems in place to be able to detect it. The worry with this version of the virus is that it does spread more easily to, uh, to other people, although it spreads in exactly the same way as a regular version. And that means that all the things that we've been doing to protect ourselves, distancing, masking, hand hygiene, avoiding crowded spaces, avoiding poorly ventilated spaces, they will still work. There's just less room for error, uh, slightly less forgiving compared to the regular version of the virus. But we know how to avoid it, and, and therefore we know what to invoke. The other good news about this is that every indication we have thus far is that the vaccines will be effective against this version of the virus as well. That's based upon laboratory studies thus far, so we'll see how that pans out in the real world. But I think we're very optimistic that the vaccines will work against this version of the virus. Just to give you some sense of what this virus has done in the United Kingdom, the surge that they've been experiencing over late December, early January, but they are in lockdown again, and you can see they're just starting to bend that curve. Again, showing that the things that we know to do to prevent the spread of this virus, they do work. We just got to do them. Okay, thanks very much. Michael, thanks so much for that. Lindsay, I want to turn to you, if I could. The bright light in all of this is that the FDA has recently issued emergency use approval to both Pfizer and Moderna for their vaccines, and the latter of which, of course, you spearheaded at the Brigham and across the entire nation. And yet, while many members of our population are eager to be vaccinated, we have heard about people having some reluctance. What do you see as the biggest misconceptions about the COVID-19 vaccines? And what myths could you help clarify this evening for our audience? Thank you, Chuck, for raising this issue. And I think that a big challenge is how can we have done this so fast? Mm. Normally, it takes 10 or 15 years to develop a new vaccine, and this was done in 10 months. It can't be safe. And I think that's a challenging concept because the work has been going on for six months. So we don't have a complete data set. It's in 30,000 or 40,000 individuals, so we don't understand it in millions of people. But what I can say is the speed with which it was done was due to a calculation of financial risk, not scientific risk. The studies were done with full uh, safety planning and full uh, safety procedures so that the speed was increased because uh, investment in manufacturing, in product design, in simultaneously testing through different phases. So risks were taken, but they were financial, not safety. And to just stress the, the care with safety, phase one studies were done, phase two studies, as well as the large scale pivotal phase three efficacy trials. And those studies went on with weekly safety reviews, data safety monitoring board reviews by, uh, sponsored by the NIH who oversee those studies, with FDA review, CDC review, 
And also peer review with both the Pfizer and the Moderna studies having been recently published. So there can be academic discussion among a broad array of providers. And throughout all those processes, no safety concerns were raised. So I think that's the most important is that no shortcuts were taken on safety. However, some may say, well, we don't know safety in the long term at one year or two years. And the answer is yes, that's correct. Anything that requires years of duration by definition cannot occur. Most safety concerns in this setting occur within weeks of vaccination, not years. So the, the process is very reassuring on how we think about vaccines. But there are intrinsic uncertainties that have to be managed. And I think transparency in the process is critical for reassurance to the broad community. And I think one other important myth or misconception or concern is that there are key communities that are hesitant, that don't trust the healthcare system. Some of uh, the Latinx, Black communities, some of our communities with less resources or less healthcare savvy. And the studies were done in a way to be incredibly inclusive and to work hard to include broad communities so that those in the studies represent the nation and in part the nation represents the world. With over 20, 30% of those participating from Black Latinx communities and another quarter from our senior citizen communities. So as much as possible, the efficacy trials represented the communities who are hard hit by COVID which is all of us. So I think there are many misconceptions out there. Those are some of the most important that I've heard. Lindsay, thanks so much. So I don't want to leave vaccines quite yet. A tool I'd like to turn to you and get your thoughts that sort of on that other end of the spectrum about vaccine hesitancy as we talk about it, we are seeing widespread interest and demand for the vaccine. And, you know, as a country, we've never done something like this quite before in recent history. And we're seeing guidelines vary from state to state. You're a member of the Biden transition COVID-19 advisory board team. So love to get your thoughts and perspective of how do you see this playing out over the coming weeks to months? What's, what's on the horizon and what can you share with us? Well, first I'd like to start by saying, uh, uh, I, I just, as a personal experience, it is incredible to me, you know, Lindsay ran the Moderna trial my mother wanted to participate. She said she's 84 years old and she said, I want to contribute to science. I, I don't know how safe it is. I don't care. We have to help. And if she went in and did it, I said, okay, I'll sign up for the trial too. And so Lindsay, you know, I got my shot back in August and I had no idea, placebo, not placebo. And now here we are and we're rolling this thing out. And this morning, I'm part of a team where the Brigham has partnered with a operations and logistics team that I put together that's been running widespread testing all across the state. And we opened Gillette Stadium. Thank you to the Crafts. Thank you to Betsy. Thank you to the enormous teams that came together. And we started vaccinations this morning with the Moderna vaccine that was just in trial. And the thing that I heard from people, you know, so this is for first responders. And it's the first person who came through was a Fallon ambulance. EMT. We had police, we had firefighters. And what they'll tell me is, look, the choice here about safety is I either get the virus or I get the vaccine. They're seeing people, you know, on the street, no masks, being widely exposed, and they're scared about the virus. 
we already have clear evidence that the vaccine is safer than getting the virus. And we know it from what we see in the hospitals. So the second thing I'd say is we've been all breakthrough and no follow through. And the experience of the chaos of the last few weeks has been reflective of the fact that Lindsay described the substantial amount of resources telling the manufacturers, get the production going. Well, none of that happened to health systems like our own, to the state and the ability to say, go get the staff, go get the plans. Here's what we're going to offer is the way we're doing things. Many folks, including my team that's setting up Gillette and now we'll be setting up Fenway soon to follow, we learned a couple days before Christmas what the parameters were that we could work against and then had to work straight through the holidays, you know, no breaks, no weekends, day and night to begin to make this happen. What's a six-month process we're compressing into three or four weeks. What is going to change in the, you know, after inauguration and in the next few weeks to come is that there is a commitment to having national strategy, national coordination, regular daily communication to allow everybody on down to the health center level to understand how much vaccine is available, how much is coming, when is it coming, can you open up appointments for the second doses, how do you make sure the commitment is there that all of the vaccine available will be released and the production will be there. And so what I think we're already starting to see is that people in the state level and the county level, in the pharmacies and elsewhere, are getting more and more confidence that the commitments are ones that they can actually bank against. You know, many places started to open up and then discovered one week later that their allocations were cut by 30, 40%. And now they have confidence that they can make the plans and see allocations of vaccine rising. I think we will see more and more of the general public being able to have this in the next couple of weeks to come. The Biden administration committed to 100 million vaccinations delivered by 100 days. We're not yet on the daily course to get there, but I'm actually quite confident we will meet that and exceed that. We're seeing a ramp up in the pace that's occurring. I already see what we're going to be capable of doing at Gillette. I believe we'll be able to do more at Fenway. The hospital is rolling out the systems to enable this. And I'm in contact with states who are aiming to replicate precisely what we're doing. I think we'll see a lot of different channels that this comes through, but it will be in the weeks and few months to come. Atul, thanks. You mentioned a little bit about that distribution plan, thinking about how much vaccine we sort of release now. And I want to get back to that. I know we received some questions in advance that, that touch on that. But Mike, I want to throw something back to you. So Atul is talking about really massive widespread vaccination on an unprecedented scope. And that I think brings us to this question about herd immunity. People talk a lot about it. I want to get your thoughts about what is it? Is it something we'll achieve? And if we will achieve it, when are we going to achieve it? Okay. Yes. Herd immunity is the golden grail over here. (laughs) Herd immunity is the notion that when you get to a certain number of people in society who are either have had natural infection or who've been vaccinated and therefore are resistant to the virus is that it uh, it dramatically aborts the virus's capacity to spread within society because basically everywhere it turns gets blocked by somebody who has antibodies either from their natural infection or from their vaccine. What's not known is exactly what proportion of society has to reach that state where they either have had natural disease or vaccine in order to be protected. 
In the early days of the epidemic, people were saying 60%, more recently, people were saying 80% or 90%. One easy way to think about this is that we talk about the average number of people who get infected by every person who has COVID. And that number is currently felt to be around three or four, maybe it's a little bit higher in England, four or five. So if you think about it, in order to decrease infections, what you have to do is get to a point where each person is infecting less than one person, which means that if each person with infection spreads to an average of five, you'd have to vaccinate four out of the five to get to the point where less than one person is going to be infected, which would translate to four out of five protected would be 80% of society. So that's where you get the 80 to 90% protection rate required. We estimate that right now, probably 20 to 25% of Americans have been infected so far. And if you look at the new infections per day, we estimate maybe 5 million people are being infected every week. So we are climbing there through both the natural pathway. And as Dr. Gwandi and colleagues get us to 100 million people vaccinated within 100 days, that will surely bring us also into a good spot. I think we could get there as soon as the summer. And I think that our greatest potential barrier to this is vaccine hesitancy, people being reluctant to get the vaccine. Can I interrupt Chuck to ask Mike, <laughs> since I got you here? Of course, I'm worried in both my advisory capacity and what I'm doing at the state level about the new strains, the UK strain, the South African strain, that are less than 1% of our population. And if those are more contagious, won't that mean you have to get even higher levels of vaccination in order to really kill the spread? That's exactly right. So we'd say with the regular strain of the virus, if, it, if, it, if each person passed on the virus to an average of three or four people, then you'd have to vaccinate three out of four to get protection. If now the new strain affects on average five or six people, then you have to get five or six out of individuals for every six that are vaccinated. So it does lead to an incremental increase in that threshold to reach herd immunity for society. So I'm going to step away for a minute from vaccinations. And Lindsay, this is going to be to you. Obviously, part of the solution is really going to be through therapeutics. And for those who are already infected or those who become infected before they get their vaccine. Can you share at a high level about how the Brigham Research community has sort of helped inform this landscape and really contributed to where we are with therapeutics? When COVID hit back in February and March, we did not know what we were up against. We didn't know how it was transmitted. We didn't know how to protect ourselves. The staff were, we were all afraid. We were all at tremendous risk and our family was at risk and so on. And it was very complicated. And as Atul has already suggested, I think how the Brigham community has risen up to respond is truly amazing. And Maddie's point about the care providers, the nurses, the respiratory therapists, the clinicians, the residents, our trainees, it has truly been amazing. And it reminds me why we all went into medicine, to care for each other and to care for our patients. And in that way, through this hardship, it was one of the most beautiful experiences that I have had as an infectious disease doc, dealing with patients dying alone, which I think is one of the hardest parts. With that, the research community came together. And I think there were three main themes of research development that emerged. The President's Fund and other avenues enabled things to be catalyzed. And with COVID, we could not wait for grand cycles. We had to make decisions within weeks to days about what to invest in. We set up a biorepository, or let me take a step back. 
pathogenesis. We did not understand pathogenesis. So we set up data sets to understand patients, to follow patients, to have care pathways, but also to allow specimen collection. So the COVID biorepository, which was created, we helped mass CPR, which is a medical school-wide or statewide function, and we set the stage on how that should be set up. But by creating the biorepository, we were able to provide samples to over 100 investigators, thousands of samples that allowed the dissection of viral pathogenesis, viral escape, immune development for a response that allowed studies to be developed of plasma therapy and other kinds of responses. And I think that overarching effort was tremendous and has helped many investigators launch lines of investigation that have allowed us to define the pathogenesis. The early viral stage, the later immune pathogenesis stage, which then leads to the therapeutics. Can we interfere with the virus early on? And several of our investigators, investigator-initiated studies, studies done with industry, launched studies of antivirals and therapies to attack the virus, both demonstrating efficacies such as remdesivir, which our investigators led those studies, as well as disproving studies that were distractions such as hydroxychloroquine or azithromycin. And I think things that don't work have to be demonstrated. Also looking at the immunopathogenesis later in illness with anti-inflammatory therapies, showing that tocilizumab doesn't work so well while corticosteroids work better. And the adjuvants, the thrombotic diathesis, and then on the front of prevention, we've already discussed a bit about vaccines. What I wanna just highlight about vaccines and a tool raised the notion, how the Brigham community rallied around it. We did not conceive of the vaccine studies until May. We were in discussions with the NIH about how to design it. We met with the FDA, what endpoints should be. We had to create a team of over 100 Brigham community members from the research pharmacy to the processing lab, to the clinic, to the clinical research uh, support personnel to be able to do the study in three to four months so we could have the answer in December. And I think that how the Brigham community just rallied in response as a team was inspirational across all those domains that enabled us to advance knowledge and change our practice through data. All right, thank you so much, Lindsay. So we have a little less than 15 minutes and we received lots and lots of questions ahead of time. And so we're gonna do this in a little bit of rapid fire. It's the moderator's choice of who gets the questions. And I'm just gonna start uh, pointing them to, I think the most logical person. So the first question is actually a two part and I'll just read it. It says, if the first vaccine is 90% effective, why not disseminate first round vaccinations to more people versus first and second doses to fewer? And then why not give a half dose to more people? it feels like we need a different approach given the surges happening nationally and globally. So it's a two-part question. The first is what about the distribution strategy, go big on the first dose a tool? I know that there's been a lot in the press about that strategy. Do you wanna say a word about that? And then maybe uh, Lindsay, I'll ask you to talk about that, that idea of a, of a half dose. So in fact, the advisor board I'm part of did recommend to the president-elect that we back a strategy of releasing the first doses to go out widely. But we have committed to the idea that we do believe the second dose is very important, but we are willing to gamble that the manufacturers are scaling up production faster than we're scaling up distribution. And therefore it makes sense to move out 
the first doses on the expectation that there might be a chance that people are delayed to get the second dose, but that that is a risk worth taking. The second thing I'll say about it is the first dose isn't 90% effective on these mRNA vaccines. That's a lower rate of effectiveness. And the big concern, I'm very concerned about the mutants. And if you have a partially effective vaccine, you have a greater chance that you develop escape mutants that can escape the vaccine. Hmm. The boosters are important to get a very robust response for individuals. And I think that the production pipeline, plus the prospect of at least one more vaccine that could be approved, perhaps more, will mean that there is more and more supply down the pike. Great. Lindsay, what do you think about half doses? Well, I have to comment on both half and one dose. I think that I believe in the science and we need to follow the science. When we deviate from the science, we have to be very careful about the risks we're taking. I agree with releasing the first dose because we can't have 20 million doses on the sideline. We need to vaccinate as many people as possible. I think there's an implementation bottleneck that needs to be released. And I do believe the manufacturers can go to scale and they need to be encouraged and facilitated, but I'm not quite comfortable with a one dose regimen. The data are for two doses, not for one dose. And so we need to be careful about over-interpreting what we think we want them to mean. The half dose data are immunogenicity data, which are encouraging, but we, yet, we don't yet know a correlate of protection or how to leverage the immunogenicity data to determine what's effective. So I think these are all attractive. They're great scientific questions. We do not have data establishing these regimens and they make me a little bit uncomfortable. And I agree that the issue of escape mutants is a concern. I'm not so concerned about the UK mutant. The South African mutant is a different issue. And there's a lot of investigation going on to understand the relevant changes in the spike or the immunodominant domain of interest. Mike, I'm going to put a few more questions to you, if you don't mind. Does somebody still need to get vaccinated if they've been infected and had disease already? And then do they need to maintain precautions after being vaccinated? Okay, so the short answer is yes. And the reason is because we don't know how long natural immunity lasts for. And the whole intent of the vaccine is to try to give you longer lasting immunity. Now, we don't know how long vaccine immunity lasts for either. So that certainly is a, is, is a question mark. But the current public health recommendation is to give yourself every chance that you get the vaccine in addition to your natural infection. You know, the whole reason we're doing the vaccine is to be able to get back to normal life. The worry is that the vaccines are very good, but they're not perfect. Even if they're 90, 95% good, that means that 5% of people are going to potentially break through. And when you have so much disease right now, I mean, you can do the math yourself. If there's a couple hundred thousand cases per day, and that 5% of the population is not going to be adequately protected by the vaccine because of breakthrough, that could still be thousands of people a day who could continue to get infected. But for the present, we're saying, yes, continue to taking all the same safety measures, but we all hope that with time, we'll gather the experience, the knowledge to be able to demonstrate that once you're vaccinated, you can, in fact, go back to some semblance of normal life. Just wait for us to be able to see that and prove that first before you become, rather than you being the guinea pig in that process. Lindsay, here's one for you. Can I transmit COVID after I get vaccinated? Yes, that's getting at the question that Mike was answering. Transmissibility. We don't yet have the data on diminishing asymptomatic transmission or transmissibility. There are suggestions that the vaccine prevent both of those, but the data are not yet in. Those studies are ongoing and hopefully soon 
we'll have stronger data to guide the discussion. I'm optimistic that the answer will be yes, but we don't yet know that. Okay, thank you. <laughs> he drew my blood to find out. <laughs> we Yes, we are very good at taking samples and we appreciate, <laughs> I don't comment on who is or isn't in our studies, although I appreciate tools and his mother's support. And we've done everything we can to make it easier for people to participate in our studies all people, including 80 and 90 year olds, because we need to have all at risk represented. So thank you all for participation. Lindsay, that's a terrific segue. And maybe I'll turn to Atul for this next question. So Atul, can you speak about who sets the priorities for the waves of vaccinations? And I suspect that question is really directed at this country, but there's a second companion question, which is how will more resource poor areas of the globe access vaccines? Mm. So the part of this that has been complicated is that the natural way you would want to do this is that a few months ahead of time, there would have been planning that would have sent clear signals about how to prioritize what vaccinations will go out. There was a CDC committee that produced its list of recommendations only a few weeks ago. And by then, the states each had to go their own way in order to deliver plans. And so it's quite different as we can see on this call itself. You described how in Florida, they're using an age-based focus. In Massachusetts, it's a combination of age and getting to critical infrastructure like police and firefighters and emergency medical workers and others getting earlier treatment than others. And so I think, you know, the in the new administration, they will inherit things midstream and encourage just mainly simplifying. I put out an editorial recently this week in the Boston Globe saying that above all, whatever system we have has to make it simple because if the bureaucracy, if the paperwork, if having to bring an ID or a badge or whatever is blocking people from getting vaccine, we are making a total mistake. As mm -hmm. Lindsay said, 20 million doses on shelves for any reason is a mistake. The second part of your question, I do think, you know, the U.S. has made commitments. And if we get one more vaccine approved, we will have plenty to supply secured in the pipeline with financial commitments to meet our country's needs. But if we're going to contain this disease and prevent future mutations from coming through that can actually work our way around the vaccine or other medications that we have, that's going to require us supporting this internationally as well. There are important vaccines like the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is a tenth the price of the Moderna vaccine, much easier to transport because you can do it at refrigerator temperatures, and then the possibility of a one-shot vaccine from Johnson & Johnson. And AstraZeneca's vaccine has already been committed to low- and middle-income countries and a COVAX, the vaccination distribution facility that the WHO has set up. It will be incredibly important to continue to support the global rollout as well. And the Brigham has had multiple teams, including members of my own that have been helping advise on the international level as well on safely distributing the vaccines and also being able to allocate vaccines. It's very fortunate that there are dozens of trials underway that will bring more vaccines to the market. Great. Thank you, Atul. All right, this is a really unfair question, but we have a minute left. And I want to eke out as much of your contributions as we can during the session. 
So it's the crystal ball question, but very quickly, we're gonna do lightning rounds of tool. Maybe I'll start with you. So we're all living in a period of sustained crisis. We're getting used to the new normal. We all wanna get back to the old normal. As we look ahead to 2021, in sort of 20 seconds each, might you each just sort of opine on what do you see as the key scientific or societal milestones that we need to reach to start making something look a little bit more familiar? And do you think we'll hit a sudden sort of turning point or is it gonna be a much more gradual slide? Tool? I'm gonna say that there's a few things that I am really looking for. Number one, can we cut the nursing home residents and assisted living residents out of solitary confinement? And I think once vaccinated, even with a low risk, that you can start to see people get out of their rooms, see friends and family and start to travel. And I think that's gonna be something that starts to happen in weeks. Second, I wanna see that the schools, now that we see most kids in schools, and I think by spring, we could begin to do that, especially once we vaccinated the teachers. And then third, I would say, in addition to the hospitals being stabilized, that I would want to see that we now actually have deaths reducing substantially, that we'd be you know, at 90% of reduction in the death rates. We may not be you know, gone, but I would like to see that have happened by midsummer. I don't know when that exactly happened, but that's a big milestone to me. Got it. Lightning round. Mike, anything to add? I think the way forward is the really two words, vaccination and collaboration. Okay. Vaccination, obvious reasons, collaboration, because I, th- I think on so many levels of our society, if we want to be able to move forward, we have to be able to trust each other, be able to support one another, be able to take safety measures for one another. I think it's the only way forward. So I hope that we can, can achieve that. But that, I think, is our way out. Lindsay, Mike gave us two words. Do you have one? I made a commitment to my children back in April and May to get the schools open. I think we need to vaccinate a million people a day, period. Vaccinate a million people a day. And then the knock-on consequences will be what Atul said in terms of all the other benefits. And we just need to unleash that ability and deliver. All right. I want to thank each of you for giving an hour. Thank you for listening. To learn more about the Brigham's COVID-19 response and how you can help, please visit bwhgiving.org.